This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. We have talked to so many people about the issue of leadership, but not quite like our next guest. I mean, leadership skills from comes from all different sources, but the inspiration for our next guest, as I said, is very unique. His inspiration actually comes from his past, which to call it troubled is probably a bit of an understatement, but he shares all of that in his new book. It's called The Cure for Hate. And the author is Tony McLear, and he joins us now to talk about that. Tony, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me on. It's been a long time. Seven years. years. Yeah, seven <laughs> years since we had you on before. Uh, but now you've, we had to have you on to talk about your book that you have written. It's The Cure for Hate, A Former White Supremacist Journey from Violent Extremism to Radical Compassion. What is radical compassion? Well, compassion, and we'll start with what's empathy. Empathy is is feeling with another person what they're going through. Um, compassion is taking action to relieve the suffering of another. So empathy plus action equals compassion. Radical compassion takes it a step forward, and there's three components to it. Number one, your practice of compassion must take you outside your comfort zone. Number two, um, we're not just talking about the alleviation of the suffering of a, a person or persons. There's an element of social activism which is uh, inspired to change the environment which gives rise to or supports the suffering. And number three, which is the most radical part at all, we have to develop self-compassion before we can give it to others. We have to mine it from ourselves, and that means facing our pain and facing our wounds and, and uh, doing some healing work. And you know of what you speak, because we're going to go over how you got to this place as well. But as you point out, how does, how does a young man, how does a boy raised in Dunbar good family, all of that, end up as a white supremacist. How does that happen, Tony? Well, you know, because as a co-founder of Life After Hate, we deal with young people that that get into this all the time. Since Charlottesville, we've had over 300 assists for uh, requests for assistance from families and uh, half from families, half from individuals. And, you know, almost invariably, and research shows this, that, you know, there's those vulnerabilities people have that allow them to be seduced by the ideology. And it's not so much the ideology that seduces them, it's what the idea, what comes with the ideology. Uh, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of um, acceptance and power and, and all these things. And if we are lacking those things in our life, there's a variety of pathways out there that will lure us with the false promises of those things. What happened to you then? How did you get lured into that? What were those false promises that appealed to you? Well, for me, I got power when I felt powerless, attention when I felt unlovable, uh, invisible, and uh, acceptance when I felt un- unlovable. And, and those things all stem from uh, things that happened in my childhood. You know, and I think that you know, as, as part of the human experience, you know, we have a thing uh, called toxic shame. You know, and, and for me, toxic shame is an impaired sense of self, um, whether we get it at school, at, at house, or through bullying, or through whatever. Um, we at the very depth of our core belief system of who we are, we feel that we're not good enough, we're less than, we're not whole, um, we're not smart enough, pretty enough, whatever. And we live our lives in reaction to that, to mask that, to hide that, to prevent the world from seeing the deficiency. So then would you say when you have those feelings that instead you 
lash out at other people? You find other people in order to feel superior to? Absolutely. So we, from that place of toxic shame, and there's often an unresolved anger that goes along with the toxic shame, we do one of two things. We either externalize the shame and anger and project it onto someone else. Um, That looks like violence, emotional violence, bullying, joining a gang, uh, an extremist group. Murder is the ultimate externalized expression of shame. Um, But more often than not, we do it to ourselves. We internalize the shame and it's eating disorders, cutting, substance abuse. Uh, Even disease can be a weird way that the body attacks itself to deal with it. And suicide is the ultimate expression of internalized shame. Right, but you found yourself hanging out with, well, now we would say all the wrong people, Mm -hmm. um, acting out, would you say, with violence? Yeah, absolutely. Targeting certain groups? Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. Like what? Can you give us an idea of what would go on like with your, with your so-called friends at that time? Well, I think I could, if I were going to recall an incident when I was 16 or 17 and we were down by the aquatic center, which is where gay men used to go cruising. And we were, I think there was about half a dozen of us and we were drinking beers and, you know, shouting things at the, at the men that walked by and, and, you know, one turned around and told us to F off and that was the provocation and it was on and. We chased him, and we chased him into a construction site, and he got into, like, underneath a, like, a, almost like a crawl space where we couldn't get at him. And, you know, and it's, you know, I still feel the shame of what we did, but we, like, kids at you the lake. You were terrorizing lake, somebody. Yeah, and we picked up stones, and we were like kids at the lake skipping stones across the lake, except we were skipping them into the crawl space to hit a target we couldn't see. And the only way we knew that we hit him is when he yelled out in, in pain. And, you know, it's, I know what it's like to be in that place of powerlessness, to know that there's something bad's about to happen. There's absolutely nothing I could do about it. And instead of having understanding and empathy for that man, um, I projected, I put it onto him. I took it off myself and put it onto him and, and, uh, you know, that's the, the dark part of human nature. I think there's a great quote that says, that which we don't transform, we, we transmit. What was the turning point for you? It was a process, not an individual point, but it really started with the birth of my daughter and my son 15 months later. And that began the process of the opening uh, of my heart because up until that point, I was completely self-absorbed, completely full of ego and narcissism and the only person I thought about was me. I think that one of our co-founders, Frank Mink, has got a great, great quote, and he says, I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. <laughs> uh, and then I was a single parent when they were two and four, and, and uh, you know, for the first time, you know, I was thinking of someone else other than myself. And the magical thing about children is they're safe to love. It was safe for me to allow myself to take down the guard and, and, and feel because, the, you know, the reason we close off, it's because we learn somewhere along the way it's not safe to be open. Um, but children aren't capable of shame. They're not capable of ridicule. They're not capable of rejection, at least till they're about 13. Were you afraid of what they would see? Of Were you afraid of them emulating the hate, of them hearing these things that you were talking about with friends of yours? Absolutely, and and... You know, the last thing that, you know, as my daughter started to grow up, the last thing, the last place I wanted my daughter to be was in this movement that was full of misogyny and anger and negativity. And it was not a healthy 
a healthy place to be. And, um, you know, at that point, I'm, I left the movement, you know, when they were about, about five and six. I left the movement, but I kept my identity intact. The challenge for me in that space was my ideology and my identity were intertwined. And I think that's, that holds true for a lot of people. In, in what, was your, what was the ideology at that time, would you say? Oh, that whites were superior and that we were under threat by, you know, the great replacement, you know, white genocide and, and the, the masterminds, the architects of that white genocide uh, was this international hive mind of Jews that were out to destroy the white race. That was the... And that would you say you were in that circle with other people who also thought that? Absolutely. And so, yeah, it's, if your kids are young, they pick up on that kind of stuff. How did you know then that you hadn't, they hadn't picked up on that? Like that must've been important to you, right? When as a parent is you want, you don't want that poison in their minds. Uh, yeah. But at the time I didn't think it was poison. And, you know, as I went back uh, later on in life and went to family members and other members that, uh, to, to apologize for what I'd done. And, and, um, you know, the, my coach and mentor, Dov Barron, you know, told me how to give a heartfelt apology. And you say, how did what I did affect you and then you you shut up and And then you listen no deflection and just you know feel and take it in and and you know my my son said to me you know you you know you never you never put it on us you never forced it on us and uh, you know he doesn't remember being in you know and trying to indoctrinate and 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 so I think for them to survive in preschool and stuff like that I I didn't do that and let them have their have their choice, but, um, was, it was, walk, was walking away hard. It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the hard part was the identity piece, letting go of the identity and you know, how I, how the ego likes to go through these mental gymnastics to contort itself to fit the new reality. I convinced myself that, you know, with my phone line, having gone to the Supreme court of Canada twice, that, why should I care about fighting for a bunch of white people who really couldn't care whether I lived or died? If I was really going to serve the white race, I'll take care of that, make sure these two children thrive and survive. And that's how I pivoted out of the movement, but kept the ideology and identity intact. In but since then, obviously a lot has changed for you. When you look back now, do you go, oh, if only I had done this differently, or I can't believe this got me. Like, is it, is it, were you surprised by how you were attracted to this? Like, what do you tell other people? Well, you can't always you can't always see it with the clarity of hindsight right. when you're when you're in it. Um, you know, I was a, a lot of what I was amazed at and looking looking back and you know in the book, I, I look back on it with the hindsight and and the insight gleaned from over a thousand hours of one on one and group counseling. So in, in in the middle book where I'm trying to you know, capture the fervor and intensity of being there. I'm also stepping out with the the reflections and hindsight of what was what was driving it. And and um, you know, the, one of the things that really stuck out is is um, you know, and I ask people this question: Think of all about all your behaviors and beliefs, and ask yourself: Is it the same as one of your parents? Is it the opposite of one of your parents, or is it actually yours? And it's amazing how many of my behaviors and beliefs and choices were actually one of the two polarities of mostly mostly my dad. Like the opposite of your dad. Or the same. Like my dad was bombed by the Germans during World War II. So 
he wasn't, you know, I, I had a picture of the guy who sent the bombs on my wall. You know, there's, it's an interesting way to be angry at your dad. But at the same time, you know, I like this out of the punk scene. I like the skinhead thing because it was very, you know, pro-British and jingoistic. And, you know, my dad was, there's nothing more English than an Englishman abroad. And, and that was my dad growing up. And so there's, we sometimes try to align ourselves with our parents right. for as a false bond. To get their acceptance and, a, and approval, and or react to your parents, or or react, yeah. But how much of how much of these behaviors are they're not conscious? They're just part of these so psychological um, things going on in the background. Was it cathartic for you writing the book? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there was parts of the book that I had completely forgotten. They really. Were, like it all came back to you as you were writing it. Yeah, because I was I was checking the internet, you know, just to make sure things were when dates you remembered, and, and yeah, you know, and I came across an article that, that uh, you know, talking about how the Aryan resistance movement was Canada's largest neo-Nazi skin thing, and I, I remember being a part of Arm, but I, I, the ego is crazy when it wants to get rid of stuff and yeah. and hide even stuff you've heard just thirty seconds before. It'll. Stuff that it you translated want. in your mind quite differently, right? Yeah. Depending on how you want to perceive that. And then, it, then it all all came came back. But it's uh, it the eagles. The eagles a trickster. What do you hope people get out of this? Well, I think that um, I hope for some people that they see parts of their own journey. If they didn't, even if they didn't end up in a hate group, um, they can learn something about their own healing. I think if there's families or, that are worried about a loved one that are caught up in, in this, this movement, I think it'll provide them with some insights and some answers on how to deal with it and how to understand it and um, as, as a resource for, for people trying to understand how do young people get drawn in and, more importantly, how do they, how do they leave and, and how does life after hate help people leave so people can follow that example. Well, Tony, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. We appreciate that. That is Tony MacLear. The book is called The Cure for Hate, A Former White Supremacist Journey from Violent Extremism to Radical Compassion. It's available now, and we've been talking to Tony as part of our leadership series. We'll be right back.